Some of this week's table conversation may be a difficult listen. You may find some of the conversation triggering. If this sounds like it could be you, please read the episode notes before listening. Hello, settle down. I know it's exciting to be back. Get your bottle from the fridge. Pour yourself a large one. If you're peckish, you're welcome to a little snack. Welcome to the table. Welcome to Table Conversation with me. I am Craig Story. So how are you? I hope all is good. It really does feel good to be back with you having a chat, a conversation around the table. Thank you so much for listening. And I said in the trailer, it's been over a year since we gathered. And I did say one of the main reasons of that time passing was the passing of my dad. I knew that I could not talk about such a big life event with you, but I also knew that I needed to be ready to share. Well, now is the time. Maybe you'll resonate. Maybe someone you know will too. Don't forget to rate, share and like this episode if you feel that someone you know will benefit from joining us. It also comes a little bit of a warning that I'm only talking about my own experiences and I will talk about grief and how it's not a linear process. It's not the same for everyone and I can only speak from my personal experience and that's what I'm sharing with you at the table today. I'm going to start the story when I was eight or nine years old and I can remember a distinct moment in time and I was sat on the patio at mum and dad's house, sat outside their back garden and I remember asking my dad, well what am I going to do when you and my mum die? Where am I going to go? What's going to happen to me? You know when you're a child and you're so dependent on your parents, it was obviously something that I'd even thought about at such a young age. But dad said to me, don't you worry about it, by the time that happens you'll have your own family, you'll have your own life and I didn't delve any further with it at that age. I probably had a sip of my drink and carried on running around the garden. Obviously at that age to lose any either of my parents would have been really tough and it still is tough. Fast forward to 30 odd years later when I did lose my dad in March 2022. But some of my dad's advice did ring true because you do have your own life and it's a different position that you're in isn't it and I there is no hierarchy to grief. Your loss is always the worst loss although we do have certain expectations around family members that are reaching a certain age. And over the past couple of years, my dad's health had deteriorated. He'd got heart failure as a diagnosis. He'd also got arthritis. He was a builder for years, so parts of his body would ache, his joints, his shoulders, his neck, his back. Um, so over the past couple of years, also we were living with covid And my dad was a very independent person. He still drove. He did all of the shopping. He was out and about seeing people, whereas COVID locked him away. And at the start of it all, he really didn't want that to happen. And it was only after some stern talks from myself and brothers and sisters that we got to to get him to stay in um, because we were fearful of him catching the virus with his age and his health conditions. The likelihood was that if he caught the virus, he would die and... We'll never know, but I think being stuck at home and being in lockdown was not good for, well, it wasn't good for any of us, was it? But especially for elderly people when they were told that they were going to die if they left their homes, if they went into a supermarket. And I think that socially it really did affect my dad because even when we came out of the lockdowns and we could go to restaurants or we could go out and about, he he was fearful. He'd, he was an avid 
reader of the Daily Mail. He watched the news. He was fearful. And I guess we were as a family because of his health and his health conditions. Over that time, the last couple of years, well, the last year of his life, he did have a hospital visit where he'd got a chest infection. He'd got pneumonia, it turned out, and he had the treatment for that. And at that point, we couldn't visit the hospital because it was um, COVID restrictions. So you weren't allowed to to visit but he was in the hospital he got checked over he had some treatment and he did come home and at that point you thought is is this going to be the time that we lose dad you do start to think that when he's getting to a certain age he was 83 at that point but he came home he bounced back and he was good he my dad always followed doctor's advice. If the doctor said to take a tablet at a certain time of the day, he would take it. He was quite conscious of making sure he got loads of fluids, he ate well. He he really did look after his health. I think he realised towards the later parts of his life that that was what was going to keep him going. When you have a parent, a relative, a loved one who's getting into their 80s, you do start to think about when will their time be? Um, it's like we, I said before, you have certain expectations around death and dying and I don't know whether it's because I watch too many TV dramas or it's dramatised for me, but I thought it'd be three o'clock in the morning, I'd get a phone call from my mum to say that my dad had died. Why three o'clock in the morning, I don't know. You know, you can set your iPhone to loud, can't you, for certain contacts. Even if you've got it on silent, it will disturb the silence. And my mum is the only contact on my phone that I have where it will disturb the silence. So I was expecting that 3am call, getting out of bed and getting that. And it, it's, it taught me that you can't predict or write how death is going to come to someone or how it will all play out. Well, I did get a message from my mum. I was away working. I was in London and I got a message from mum. Can you call me when you can? Normally, if it's something that's low key, I don't really need to rush to give her that call back. She would just say nothing to worry about at the end. So I knew I needed to give her a call and I gave her a call and she told me that dad had been taken to hospital. They believed that he had a mini stroke, like a TIA. And she said he'd got up that morning. He would, he stumbled the night before and didn't want any fuss. He didn't like any fuss at all. He didn't want to go to hospitals. He didn't want to call an ambulance, anything like that. So the next morning he got up and he was sorting his tablets. Like I said, he was very meticulous with his health care. He'd have his tablets in day blocks and these little containers where it would be each day of what medication he would take. And he was trying to sort it out. And because he was so meticulous with that kind of thing, he was getting really confused. And mum said something's not quite right. And he was mumbling and, and talking differently. So luckily my niece is a nurse. And my mum called her and she said, do you want me to come and check? granddad out so she came down and they called an ambulance then and that's when they took him to hospital so mum had told me about that he admitted to hospital and at that point I was away with work my dad was in hospital you couldn't visit again there was no restrictions on visiting to hospital so that was the Friday I think yeah it was a Friday and I was already coming home on the Monday anyway so we knew that he would probably be in hospital over the weekend which he was my mum couldn't speak to him. We couldn't get through on his mobile phone. He wasn't answering his phone. Um, but we could speak to the ward and the, the nurses and the healthcare people there. We could speak to them and find out how he was doing. My dad didn't like hospitals. Well, not many people do like being in hospital, do they? And yeah, we couldn't see him. And it, that was quite hard, actually, because I know that he would have been fearing what was going on and we couldn't be there to rally him round and to offer him support. Although you rely on the staff of the hospitals, but they're so stretched, aren't they? And we, we know all too well that there are shortages of staff in the hospitals. One conversation they did have with him was about a respect form. And it might be something you've not heard of before, but it's a, it's a legal form which 
somebody declares that they do not want to be resuscitated. Um, there are different options on the form, but they'd had that conversation with my mum and my niece on the phone and with my dad at the hospital, which it was so sad that we couldn't be there when that conversation was happening. Or maybe he didn't, he wouldn't have wanted us to be there when he was having that conversation. It's an important conversation. I think now, once you get to a certain point or a certain age, it is something that your doctor will talk to you about. And again, we watch those films, don't we? We watch TV dramas where somebody receives CPR and they're up out of bed the next day. They're running around doing their normal life. Where when you speak to medical professionals, the reality of someone having CPR or going into cardiac arrest, and it's not as simple as being able to get out of bed, especially the older that you get. It wouldn't really be respectful or dignified to to leave someone in a state of life like that. You can only make your own decisions around your family, but that was a decision that my dad had made and he came out from hospital with the respect form. It was horrible not being able to visit and because we couldn't get through to him on the phone and we were constantly trying, my sister and my mum did get through to him once, but we he wasn't answering his phone and it became clear why when we got the call to say that he was being discharged and he could come home which was the Tuesday and we picked him up from the hospital myself and my niece went along we, we went to pick him up and the healthcare assistants brought him to the hospital door because again we couldn't go inside of the hospital but the change was quite dramatic firstly he was on a walking frame and I'd never seen my dad with a stick or what he my dad was quite a vain person he used to take off his glasses to go to the front door I mean he's in his 80s and didn't want people to know that he wore glasses but he would he was on the frame he looked so different his facially his eyes and my niece actually said afterwards she's I could tell with your face that you were shocked at how he looked and I I was because I just wasn't he'd come out of hospital before and he just took some more tablets he was at home and he was back to his old self but I knew this was different. He was actually quite hard to understand when he spoke as well. You could make out majority of what he was saying, but the stroke had actually affected his speech and some of his cognition. And he'd got two of these frames that he was bringing home with him, one for upstairs, one for downstairs. Um, Luckily, mum and dad have got stairlifts that are adapted for him to be at home. He probably wouldn't have been allowed to come home from hospital I think being in the home environment and was much better for him. He was at home. He was at, relaxed. He'd got his family around him. We've got, I've got two brothers, two sisters, nieces, nephews. So there's lots of support. And being around his family was really important for a dad throughout his whole life. So at this point, even more important to be around his family. He was still quite specific about what he wanted to eat and how he's going to eat it and how I was cooking fish fingers even. He told mum to make sure that I was cooking them properly. Um, because I was actually on leave at this point because I was due to go to Australia to visit family there. At this point, I postponed the flight by a week because I wanted to see my dad at home for a week to see how he was and to make a decision as to whether I would actually go to Australia or not. So I pushed it down the line and airline was fantastic and said, yeah, that's fine. So a week later, I was due to go to Australia. That meant I could stay at my parents. I don't have children or dogs or any any sorts of commitments, which meant that I could go and just stay over there and be a support for mom and dad while I was off work at that point. I have to say the support from the hospital the home support was fantastic. They had a team that was the community stroke team and they came and visited the day after he was discharged from hospital to see what support he would need at home in terms of physio, speech and language, nutrition. They were just amazing really. 
and they got some support for a care package for carers to come in to help with my mum with showering and getting my dad ready in the mornings and again at night time so they were amazing and what they do the work they do is fantastic they were asking about what my dad wanted out of this did he want to be able to return to be able to cook and do different things and at this point we we're all quite positive because we thought oh this this is looking really good there is something in place where dad's going to get better and this isn't going to be the end point for him you start to get a bit of hope and the following next couple of days were the best days as a family we were coming together to support dad and to support mum in looking after dad and at that point you do feel really lucky that you have a bigger family that you do come together and rally around it takes some of the pressure off by sharing some of that responsibility but dad was good those couple of days he was eating well he was talking better and we could understand what he was saying and he was following what had been said to him by the community stroke team after those couple of days there was a change though and we'll never know because my dad never had any further scans but it seemed and the community stroke team said it seemed to them as well like he had had further events as they call it so more TIAs or more mini strokes that affected his speech and his movement and his ability to swallow and that affects a lot of people with strokes where they have to have their liquids thickened to make sure that it doesn't get onto the fluid doesn't get onto the lung and cause any kind of infection this community stroke team were amazing because you could call a mobile number and ask them for any advice and we'd called them and they sent the speech and language therapist out who they're very experienced with people who have had strokes so they can see what is going on and she was concerned about whether dad would be able to get enough fluids inside of him by using the thickening solution she actually recommended that dad went back into hospital that wasn't something that he wanted to do and as a family we had a discussion about whether he should just go back into hospital and they would hook him up to a a saline drip and get some fluids inside of him but then you have to make a decision as a family and you have to get second opinions as well because you can't just take someone's first word for it especially when my dad felt so strongly about not going back into hospital we also had the benefit of Amy who is a medical professional and speaking as a family all together it was there was at the end of the day it was my mum's decision that would be the ultimate decision but the we made the decision that dad wouldn't go back to hospital based on yeah he could have gone back into hospital and had the saline drip and it would have been fine he would have got the fluids into him he'd have been discharged from hospital at some point and then we'd have been back to square one so where do we go from there covid restrictions were still in place at that time so we wouldn't have been able to visit dad and at that point when you start to think is this now going to be the end point then the restriction was that two people could go in to spend time with a loved one while they were passing away for 10 minutes and I mean it's inhumane when you look back at it isn't it that that was what was accepted but that was what was deemed to protect everyone at that point so yeah we didn't we decided that dad was not going to go back to hospital and I have to say in my own experience of the last couple of weeks of my dad's life when speaking to doctors I was on the phone or doctors that have come out to visit or nurses that have come in to take statistics and blood tests and all of that they find it really hard to talk about death and someone dying the one the ones that I came into contact with did it was almost like there was an avoidance of talking about it being the end and I understand it it's probably quite a challenge isn't it and it's not an easy conversation to have with a family it's no way a criticism either because I get it their primary aim is to preserve life I guess they're trying to protect you from the pain. And there's one day that 
a nurse had come out to take my dad's blood pressure. She wasn't very happy with the results of blood pressure. Then they called, it was a Sunday morning, they called an on-call GP and he wanted an ambulance to come there and then to take my dad to hospital. And my dad really didn't want to go to hospital. I knew it. And by this point, we'd kind of accepted that things were not looking very good for my dad. So I'm having this conversation with a doctor, quite a heated discussion because he was making me feel like I was being cruel by keeping my dad at home. But I knew that my dad didn't want to go into hospital. The nurse was standing in the room. She was looking at me to say, I know exactly where you're coming from, but I can't say that because this doctor's on the phone. He wanted him to get hooked up to a machine to test his heart. He said, this is couldn't be the end for your dad. This could be that he has an operation and he has a stent fitted and all this kind of stuff he was saying to, which I knew he didn't know my dad. He'd never met my dad. He had no medical history of my dad in front of him. At 84, to have an operation where he's just had a stroke and have a stent fitted, I just knew that it wasn't right. And I said to him on the phone, well, what's my dad going to do when he gets to hospital? Just die in the corner by himself. And because you'd start to get a little bit angry at this point, I made a compromise and I said to the nurse, yeah, let's call the paramedics and let them check over dad and see what they think. At the same time, convincing my dad that we weren't going to allow him to go to hospital. The paramedics came, again, amazing people, what they do. And they talked to us about dad's history. They put him on an ECG. They checked his heart out. And they said, these are normal results for him. At this point, we'd moved mum and dad's bed into the living room. So he was downstairs. So they wouldn't have to get him up and down the stairs anymore. And they were really good. And they actually said to us that they, we cannot force someone to go into hospital if it's against their wishes or if it's against your wishes. We cannot force. So don't worry about this hospital thing. And it's only because we were protecting my dad's wishes and very often made to feel bad about it by the medical professionals. And whether that's because, like I said, their primary aim is to preserve life and promote recovery of life. By this point, we had come to the stage where we were accepting that it's looking like this is going to be the end of my dad's life. The next day, a GP came out to see my dad and she was doing a, an inspection of his body or a, an assessment of his body, not an inspection. And his stomach had started to swell up a little bit. And again, she said, I think he should go to hospital to have a scan. And um, my niece was with me at the time and she knows what she's talking about. She's a nurse and she said, well, and what are we going to do with the results of this scan then? Where are we going to go with this? What are you going to do when you get the results of this scan of his stomach? And I think because she was so matter of a fact with the doctor and was speaking in the same language, it kind of jolted the doctor a little bit because then she just let out a breath and she says, you're right, I'm going to change the respect form to no hospital admission. I'll prescribe some drugs that will help through this time and I'll give you the contact details for a hospice, which is Marianne Evans Hospice, which do outreach calls to and they come into your home, they administer the drugs, and they provide end-of-life care within someone's home. So the doctor wrote the prescription for the drugs, we'd got the phone number to call, so we'd also got a new respect form that no one was going to, we were never going to have those conversations again with another doctor about whether my dad should be admitted to hospital. That became a huge relief to know that we weren't going to have to have that battle anymore, we were just going to start dealing with something different now. Things did accelerate at this point and it, I remember it was my birthday actually and the that was the first night that we called for the team to come. There was a nurse and an assistant that came into the house. They administered some drugs to help dad with sleep and to take away pain and I remember having the conversation with them. What am I looking for here? What, what would be a sign that 
things are getting towards the end. And it's strange, isn't it? Because those kind of conversations, those are the parts of love that we look away from right until we're standing on the edge. And every last scrap of bullshit or anything that bothers us in life or all the stuff we get caught up in day by day mean nothing at those points in life, do they? I was really grateful that one of my best friends actually works for the Mary Ann Evans Hospice, although she didn't come in and do any care for my dad, but I could speak to her about what these drugs were and what they would do for my dad and what the process would be. So I was really blessed with that as well, to have her to talk to about what this looks like. I mean, how these people do this day in, day out, I do not know, but I believe they are angels on earth to go into people's houses when it's it's the worst time of people's lives, isn't it, when we're losing someone close to us or a loved one. So how they do it, I do not know, but I have so much respect for that team that make someone's life, the end of someone's life, so much easier for them and for their families. I always knew that my dad was scared of dying. I wonder what was going through his mind at that point, but he became unconscious in the last couple of days of his death. What brought him the comfort? I'd read in some spiritual books that you should tell people it's okay to go when they're in the later stages of life. And I did. I had that conversation with my dad. I said, it's okay to go. You don't want someone to suffer, do you, when you see them lying there? I don't know whether he did know that it was coming to this stage, though, because he was getting his house into order during the last sort of week of his life where he was conscious and up and able or more able and he'd got his car that he wanted to sell he wanted uh, money put into certain bank accounts it was he was getting his house into order so did he know that was happening something else happened that you hear a lot of people talk about as well when they say towards the end of someone's life they see people or they talk to people that have passed over before so my dad said that my uncle reg had been to see him that day and my uncle reg had died about five years before that so he'd also seen someone in a chair that when me and my nephew were standing either side of a chair no one was in the chair but he's like who's that and this is all before he started having the the stronger drugs injected into him so I don't know I I like to believe in a spiritual world where past loved ones do exist I don't know I'm not going to be able to prove it here but it was an almost like a sense of calm in the house it was a weird sort of time and also the other thing that they say is about people reaching up and their arms throwing up to the sky and he did that quite a few times as well which I don't know it just just, you like to think that they're going into the arms of loved ones that have already passed and whatever brings you comfort you might think that I sound like a crank when I say this but yeah I do believe in the spiritual world I don't know whether you do or not but it's what brings you comfort isn't it so the next morning after my birthday was the day of my dad's passing and I remember the start of the day the nurses had come in in the morning to give him some medication and I had a conversation with the nurse and I, she said I said in terms of time it's it's weird because you're having this really random conversation about time and you almost want them to say to you well in six hours 30 minutes this is when it's going to happen and they can't say anything like that but I asked her and she said I know what you're asking me I can't give you an answer she said but if there is anyone that wants to see him or, he, or would like to come and see him then I think you should tell them to come now And if you can talk about a passing being a beautiful way to go, then my dad's was. He was at home. uh, We had two brothers. uh, My brother had got home from working time. My two sisters. 
my niece was there as well and he had a lot of trust in my niece with her medical background he trusted a lot of what she had to say and we were sort of taking it in turns of being in the room where my dad's bed was and we were sitting around in the afternoon and I was in the dining room with my mum and Amy my niece was in the living room and she noticed a change that she's obviously seen before in the hospitals that she knew that it was the time was coming and she shouted for my mum to go be with him and we were all there with him around his bed holding him and he'd got his children all five children around him with my mum and you can't write a perfect way to go but for me for my dad I think that was his perfect way to leave the world and there is great comfort as a family to know that you provided that environment and you didn't listen to medical professionals who wanted him to go into hospital and he wasn't by himself like many people were during the past couple of years so there is some comfort within that and to think about that time to be together at that point there is something beautiful about it you spend time and then you think well what do we do next and Marianne Evans Hospice actually they you have to get somebody certified that they have passed away and they provide that service so you've already got a link up to an organization that can come to your home that people that you trust and you know uh, are beautiful people and they came and they they did what they needed to do and we could all spend time with dad and spend some time saying our goodbyes individually and I don't know I always used to think that I'd never be able to be in the same room as a as someone as a just a body but again there was something so peaceful about how my dad looked he just looked like he'd gone to sleep so I felt very comfortable sitting and talking to him there's no textbook or guidebook to to what to do you just go in with how you feel at the time and how everyone around you is feeling and the undertakers came and they took my dad's body and we stuck together as a family during that and we stayed my two sisters and myself stayed with my mum that night and I don't know there's some comfort in being together isn't there at, at those points but we my nieces nephews the whole house was very busy at that point growing up in a small town everyone knows the family that are the undertakers and again the professionalism and the trust that you put into these businesses or these people to look after your loved ones and knowing we could do that was also brought, bringing us a, a great sense of comfort everything seemed to happen so quickly over the next few days and we got my sister it's a ringleader she was organizing everyone into getting the house back to how it was before the beds moved we all had jobs to do there is quite a lot of admin to do after someone passes away as well and the next morning the registrar called to register my dad's death because you couldn't go into the registry office at those times and those words for the first time I, mean, I was speaking with the registrar on behalf of my mum and when they said the words like I'm calling you to register the sad passing of your father and read out my dad's name I was it sent a shiver down the back of my neck to hear that being said and those words coming out of her mouth and again these people that deal with this day in day out she was brilliant and very calm and took all of the information that she needed you need a certificate to prove that my dad had passed away for lots of reasons so we went through the process I remember saying at the end of the call thank you for looking after your mum and it that no thank you was needed because that's just something that naturally comes to us as a family there's no way that we'd let mum deal with that after losing dad after all those years of being married and together her soulmate but 
it was a funny thing for her to say at the end of the call because but it was just nice that people recognize what you're what's happening with you as a family the world does keep on spinning and you have to carry on your world might be falling apart but when you step out out into the world then the world is carrying on as normal and you do have to do the everyday things like going to the shops and I remember going to get food from the shops and it's a small town where I grew up and mum and dad lived and people know everyone and I was just hoping that I wouldn't see anyone that I knew and to the point where I thought should I drive out of this town to go to the shops to get some groceries well I didn't I went to the local supermarket I did see two people that I knew and it was just like words that they were saying the voice the voices were just saying words I didn't even recognize what was being said it was hard to make sense of those words when you bump into people that you know but it's hard for them too isn't it to approach someone that you know is has gone through a loss we all avoid these types of conversations at all costs don't we I understand why it's easier to hide away for some people at the these points do you get on with the planning as well the conversations about coffins hearses the wake the cars it's so strange having those kind of conversations while you're sitting there in a room thinking my dad's body is not far away from me right now I decided that I didn't want to go and see my dad in the chapel of rest at the undertakers I wanted to keep the image of the peaceful dad that I saw at home I didn't I was too nervous that I might go in there and see something different than that would be my lasting image of my dad my brother he decided he was going to go and see my dad and he said he still looked really peaceful my dad would have been really pleased because the undertaker said he's the youngest 84 year old that youngest looking 84 year old that they've ever seen so he would have been really pleased with that compliment as vain as my dad was I'd also decided and asked my family if they'd be happy that I read the eulogy at my dad's funeral. They were all happy and very supportive of that. When I look at it and knowing what I know about self-help and personal growth, I knew what I was doing. I knew that I was keeping busy. It was a distraction for me. It it was also something that I wanted to do for my dad. Um, I knew there was a personal benefit to it as well because it would keep me busy and distracted. Standing up and speaking in front of people is what I do a lot for work. So I also knew that it was a little bit of normality for me as well. By being busy, was I prolonging the agony and trying to avoid the pain? Probably a little bit. And I knew this. And my bestie, Sarah, she knew this. She said, I know exactly what you're doing and I know why you do it, but it will catch up with you. You can't outrun it. And it does at certain points. For me, though, it's better than the other alternatives at that time. I know if I'd, I could have quite easily just got drunk every day or been drinking alcohol or uh, doing other kind of distractions where that was the best distraction for me at that time obviously by this point I decided I wasn't going to Australia after the first week of dad being at home I cancelled the flight I got a a refund on that so I did but it meant that I had all this time off in between uh, my dad's passing and his funeral which gave time to reflect and have some private grief as well and be on my own at certain points and come home to my place where I could be my by myself and let out some of that grief and some of that pain you, you know that life will never be the same again and you try and hold on to like the memories of growing up and another thing was the other day I was thinking about my dad's voice I was like can I still remember what his voice sounds like and I can and I want to hold on to that that memory of his voice also during the first couple of weeks you're thinking will I ever have joy again will I be able to laugh again without feeling guilty we did have stories to share with each other that did make us smile and did 
make us laugh about some of the things that dad got up to and that all came into life actually when the vicar came around to talk to um, us about what the funeral would look like and what kind of a service that we wanted because she got a whole history of dad's life and some of the things that my mum was talking and saying I, I didn't even know about but there was some light relief in all of that and you do need those moments during this time and not to feel any guilt about it because you you like to think that your dad's there or your loved one's there laughing with you and smiling down upon while you're having that joy and you can't feel guilty about it something else that provided us all with some comfort and some relief was our faith and our belief and the vicar provided a lot of comfort at that time as well and we we said some prayers at home she did some readings from the bible i don't know what your beliefs are what i mean i'm not somebody that goes to church every week but i do have faith and i believe and that was something that really helped and especially my mum it helped my mum at that point by saying some prayers and she said that it was the, the best night's sleep she'd had was after the vicar had been around and you might think that's because whatever but I'm a great believer and you take whatever you want from it and if it works for you then that works for you if it doesn't work for you then there's something else that will the actual day of the funeral is a bit of a blur now and I think that you you build up to that moment when the car arrives and you know that your dad's inside that car and the coffin and it's quite a hard feeling because that's the last time they're ever going to come home the last time they're ever going to leave home so I remember the day was very cold it was snowing and my nieces and nephews and their partners were walking in a procession to the church it is only a five ten minute walk from where my mum and dad live I remember seeing how very cold they were we were in the warmth of the the funeral car but the actual the actual funeral I just don't remember much about it I remember the vicar saying it's standing room only there's a lot of people in there and we walked in and I remember a few of the faces when I was reading the eulogy I was looking down and some big smiles of support and encouragement and then we went on to the wake after that but the actual time inside the church during the funeral it all just seems a bit of a blur I can't remember much about it I remember standing up like I said to do the eulogy um, I'd practiced, practiced, practiced it with the hope that my voice wouldn't break and I got right to the very end where my voice did break a little bit. I knew that I did the best for my dad and that's all I wanted to do. So moving forward then after that, after you've been to the wake and the next few days, again, it's like that you're all focused towards the funeral and that is almost like that is the end point of the formalities. Then you get on to life without dad and what is life going to look like without your dad? Again, there is no rule book. It's like, do you, when do you go back to work? When do you think it's right to go back to work? When do you go and see your friends again? When do you start doing normal things? And it's because that point then you have to start building your life around the pain. And I remember watching a video on TikTok by Dr. Julie Smith, a psychotherapist, and she says that life will never be the same. That pain will always be there. It never goes away. It never completely heals, but we build life around it. There are things that come along the pathway that help you. I mean, the day after the funeral, my best friend Sarah, she rang me and said, I've got something to tell you that I've been holding off from telling you until after the funeral. And one of our friends, one of our colleagues had been to a medium or clairvoyant. I'm not sure what the right word is, but someone that connects you with the spirit world, if you believe in that. And she said Louise had been to see... A medium and towards the end of the reading I've actually spoken to Louise about it since but the reason Louise didn't want to tell me was because she wasn't sure where I was at or how I was coping or dealing with things at this point so she knew by passing it on to Sarah Sarah would best judge when it was the right time to tell me 
And she'd been to this medium and at the end of the reading, the medium said, do you know someone called Craig? Louise said, I, I do know someone called Craig. I'm not particularly close to him, but I work with him. And when we work together, we get on. But yeah, I do. She said, well, his dad's here. His dad hasn't long passed. And he wants you to get a message to him and tell him that he needs to go to Australia. It was so specific that it blew me away. I was crying instantly when Sarah told me this on the phone. But it just blew me away because it was so specific to my name and the fact that I had cancelled a trip to Australia to be there with my dad at the end of his life. It was no choice. Of course, I'm going to stay with my dad. But it spooked me. And I remember telling my mum after I'd got off the phone and my mum said it was the first time that she could look at photos of my dad after that. So whether you believe in mediums or people being able to speak to dead people, then I don't I don't care what you believe. But that was just too spooky for me. It was too, too specific at that point. I also looked for signs. You just want to feel the presence of them, even though they've gone physically. It was, I just wanted to feel the presence of my dad or to know that he was okay. And my dad is an avid Newcastle United supporter. So I asked for him. I said, Dad, when you're where you are and you're comfortable and you're where you should be, send me a black and white feather. And I don't want a little tiny black and white feather. I want a decent sized black and white feather. And it was maybe like a week or two weeks later, we were watching this morning on TV at my mum's. I'd still stayed with my mum for a while till I went back to work. And they were in this morning forest and on the screen, the presenter held up a massive black and white feather. So I kind of took that as my sign. I, was, I paused the TV, I told my mum the story of what I'd said. Um, but then maybe like a week again later, I got home and I got out of my car and there was not quite as big as the one that was on the TV, but it was a decent sized black and white feather by the door of my car. So I took that as a sign that my dad was where he's meant to be. I haven't had any sense of him around me at home. I haven't really felt his presence with me. I've got to be honest. My sisters have had some experiences where they've had some dreams where he's seemed to be very real in their dreams. They've spoken to him. My sister had a strange experience with her phone where his number was ringing and so I I don't know, you kind of look for all of these signs because you just want to feel the presence of them around you still, don't you? And I definitely want to know that my dad is with me. Many people have spoken to friends, family members that have lost closer people to them in the past. Say so the first year is always the hardest year because you get the memories of the first year and you attach a lot to the dates of when things have happened for the person that you've lost. You also have Christmas, birthdays, anniversaries, Father's Day for me, you have Mother's Day if you've lost your mum. It's the first of everything without them, isn't it? It's your birthday, their birthday without them. So it's, it is a reality for all events, isn't it? And I think the most important thing we learn as a family is how do we approach it? How do we plan for it that this dad isn't going to be there? So what are we going to do differently this time? Or what are we going to do like Christmas, for example? I always used to stay at mum and dad's Christmas Eve because I'm, I'm on my own. I don't want to wake up Christmas morning by myself. This year I did the same, but me and my mum, we changed up a little bit. We said, let's get up, do what we need to do, get some breakfast and then get out and visit children. And children bring so much joy, don't they, at Christmas? They're so excitable. Let's go and see all the family. Let's do something and mix it up a little bit that we aren't sitting here dwelling and thinking, oh, well, this should have been happening at this time. Your dad would have been getting up. Dad would have been in the shower at this time. We'd have been opening our presents together. It's just changing up the way that you do things that you don't dwell on it in a negative way that they're not there, but talk about the times that they were there as well. Thinking for us, it was about talking about Christmas's past and what 
dad had done at Christmas and how he would have liked certain foods or he wouldn't have liked that what would he have said to that if he was here so talking about him in a different way really helped especially at Christmas this year this year just gone was my birthday a couple of weeks ago and I knew that I was attaching because it was the day after my birthday that my dad passed away and it it affected my birthday this year. I mean, the my 40th, I was in lockdown. My 41st was the night before my dad passed away. And then this birthday had come out. I know it's something I'm attaching to it and I don't need to attach it to my dad's passing, but I couldn't help but look back and think, well, this time last year, I was having that conversation with a nurse from Mary Ellen's Hospice about what signs to look out for that my dad is at the end of his life. And hopefully it'll be just for this year where I'm looking back at, last year in that kind of a way but and other people said well you can't think of it you can't look back at it but actually life is painful sometimes and you can't just ignore all the uncomfortable horrible bits you have to remember those bits you can't just remember all of the joy and the the good times there are going to be points that you do remember that aren't so pretty and are uncomfortable to think about but it is all part of the life experience isn't it I tell you what is really good a lot of the supermarkets or the the shops email you in advance to say do you want to opt out of Father's Day emails because that must be horrendous if you're getting messages and on the flip side of that though you know when people put things on social media at Father's Day and sometimes people have conversations oh, I'm really sorry for saying that to you I don't want to talk about that in front of you actually I don't think you should shy away from it because it just reminds me of what I did have if I see Happy Father's Day messages and people celebrating Father's Day, it's nice for me to see those because it it reminds me of, of what I did have with my dad. And also, I think it's important to know that other people are appreciating their dads and giving them the best possible days that they can. It has been a massive life event and through the first year, I definitely have changed. And I think it's changed my perspectives. I certainly think that I'm now 42, my dad died at 84, so if I'm as lucky as him to have as full a life as getting to 84, then I'm halfway there now. It kind of gives you a kick up the backside into doing the things that you say you're going to do and do the things that you said you will do because time is precious and if I'm really lucky, I'll get to 84, but I might not as well. So it gives you a kick up the backside. It can also give you some motivation, the strength that you show at that time. I sometimes find it motivating. I think, well, you're getting through this. You got through that. You can do it. And it does motivate me to know that I have got that level of strength to get through that time in my life or getting through that time in my life. I'll be honest, sometimes it is a bit like cracks on a frozen lake. The cracks show up on some days and any more stresses or pressure I might fall through. I've always been quite to the point and maybe I am a little bit further closer to the point and sometimes it may become across a bit short. I haven't got as much time for messing around, as much time for bullshit anymore. I have to call it out quite quickly because I think that maybe comes from the knowing that time is precious and time is short for us all really we we have this illusion that we think we're going to be here forever and we're really not and I think when you see someone close to you pass away then you you know that that time does run out for us all and it's the only certainty that we have in life isn't it like anyone that's lost someone close to him I'd always love to have one more chat with him he knew that I loved him and we had chance for that before he did pass away and the last couple of years of his life I 
did everything that I possibly could, taking him to doctors, hospital appointments. If he wanted a, a, a pasty from Greg's or any any bakery, if he wanted something from Marks and Spencer's, egg custards from there, I would dot around the shops to get them. And that does take away a lot of, a lot of people say they suffer guilt after they've lost a loved one. And I don't feel any guilt at all about the last few years of my dad's life. I did everything that I could. I listened to him when he talked about his ailments, his aches and pains and tried to get solutions for him. I did everything possible. So there's nothing more that I could have done for him. And he knew that those actions showed him the love that I, I did have for him. So I don't have any regrets about anything like that. And I'm lucky with the work that I do that it gives me spare time. I can be around. I was around and visiting quite often as well. So I do feel like I, I, di I did the best that I could. Something that I know has helped me as well is mental health fitness and I've talked about this on this podcast many times and rather than using things like meditation or breathing exercises, cold showers, my rituals that I do in the mornings, rather than using them as like a first aid when something does happen, having the practice in my life I think does make you more robust and does make you more resilient. You can never take away the pain and you can't meditate your way through losing a loved one. Sometimes life is hard and it is life. You can't busy your way through it either. You can't just keep on being busy and burying things under the carpet because one day that carpet is going to lift up. Sometimes you just have to have these experiences. It is part, as I said, of the life experience. It's all part of it. But I do think keeping mentally fit and doing all you can to keep your mental fitness there by drinking plenty of water, getting good sleep, meditation, um, exercise, keeping mentally fit. I definitely think has helped me through this time we've talked a lot around the table about self-understanding self-improvement self-limits self-belief and we've talked a lot about the theory behind all of this stuff and knowing that can help you understand how you feel but it will never take away or cure any of the pain we still have to experience life you can't just read a self-help book and it'll take everything away and you're going to go through this process and then that'll be the end point and everything will be okay again. When it comes to grief, one person though that did have a massive impact and was uh, had significant impact on the field of psychology and that was Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and she helped individuals around the world understand and navigate the complex process of grieving. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, she was a Swiss-American psychiatrist who she was best known for that work on the stages of grief. She did extensive research and wrote several books on the topic, including On Death and Dying, and that introduced the five stages of grief. Over time, that was expanded and included two additional stages, which now they're accepted as the seven stages of grief, and they're commonly used to help anyone going through the grief process. It is important to note that the seven stages of grief are not linear, they may not occur in a specific order, and everyone's grieving process is unique, and it might be influenced by several factors, could be personality, culture, and the nature of the loss that you're experiencing. We can also go backwards and forwards through this line, it's different experiences for everyone, and certainly in my own experience of losing my dad, the experience has been different for me from my siblings. We can go backwards and forwards through these stages of grief, we can't control this for anyone else, we can't take away their experience. So what are the seven stages of grief? So the first stage is shock and denial, and this first stage of grief is 
where we feel numb or in a state of disbelief. And it's kind of like what I was saying when I was walking around the shops and not being able to hear the words that were being said to me. You may or you may also try to deny that a loss has occurred and avoid trying to talk about it at this stage of the grief. The second stage is pain and guilt. So during this stage, you may experience intense emotional pain and feelings of guilt. You may blame yourself for the loss if you're in a certain situation or wonder if there's anything you could have done to prevent that loss. Again, this is applied to all types of losses. Emotional pain and the aching feeling is something that I definitely experienced. And sometimes that will just happen to me now. Um, it's very often when I'm coming home from being away, I'll get this aching heart feeling and I'll just feel like a real sense of pain in my heart. And I think it's, some, it's because I'm coming home and my dad's not there anymore. And that's when I, I tend to feel the most emotional pain. Third stage of grief is anger and bargaining. So this stage, we may feel angry about the loss and may try to bargain with a higher power to bring back what we've lost. Maybe that was me asking for the signs. I don't know if that was any kind of bargaining. I didn't feel anger. I, I, one of the feelings that I did feel was relief that my dad wasn't suffering anymore. And I think that knowing my dad's personality and knowing how restricted he was when he first came home from hospital, I think if God or whatever higher power had said to him, do you want to carry on living like this for a couple of years or would you like to leave now? I think my dad would have chosen to leave now. The fourth stage is depression, reflection and loneliness, being overwhelmed by that sadness and the loneliness. Depression is commonly associated with grief, isn't it? And it's that empty sort of feeling of losing someone you might feel withdrawn from life, feeling numb in a bit of a fog. The fifth stage is when you're starting to come out of the grief and it's starting to take a turn and it's called an upward turn. And this is when you start to feel that sense of hope and you start to see the possibility of the future. The sixth stage is working through reconstruction. So it's when you start thinking about rebuilding life and you come into terms of the loss and you're in a level of acceptance. So you get into the levels of acceptance. At this point, you might also be willing and accepting support from friends and family or even at some levels, you might even accept support from a professional if you feel that you needed this. The final stage of grief is acceptance and hope. So you come to accept the loss. You start to look forward to the future with hope and optimism. And you may also start to find new meaning and purpose in the life. And you find, I've just given a brief highlight of the work here. And you can't sum it up or you can't reduce it down. That if you're like me and believe that self-understanding really helps you to sort of theorize some of the things that you've experienced and to work through these things then I'll put Elizabeth's name and the name of the book in the episode notes and also she has her protege which is David Kessler and he's a grief expert and he's still doing work now so I'll put his name there as well if you want to look a little bit further into all of this. Grief is a natural measure, it is a natural thing that we will experience and you can't outrun the grief it is a subject that we often avoid at all costs because we don't want to face these parts of love. You've got to allow yourself to feel the hurt. And I certainly took the time and the space to talk with friends. I shared, I offloaded. And I sometimes I just was by myself and cried and just let that out of my body. I think it's important to own it and name how you're feeling as well. I think this stiff upper lip, this strong stiff upper lip actually creates more pain further down the line. Remember, if it's somebody as well that you know that has lost someone, there are no magic words on both sides. So I think 
when those people around you that can look you in the eye when you are in pain, they don't have to understand, they don't have to experience the same, but they can just look you in the eye and say, here I am, I'm with you. That is the most important thing. It doesn't matter what words they say. As I said at the very start, grief doesn't have a hierarchy. We do have certain expectations about death and when we're going to lose someone in our lives and it doesn't always work out the way that we expect it to, but we do have expectations around it and your loss is always going to be the worst loss. Supporting each other and knowing your limits of your support is really important too. My mum, there's a big hole in her life and we can't, as her children, fill that hole. We can be there to, to guide her and be next to her, but we're never going to fill the hole that my dad has left in her life. A big thing for me to learn was also that you can't anticipate or you can't write the story in your head of what losing someone will be like. You can't control how it plays out. And actually how it played out with my dad was much better than what I'd imagined it would be. I imagine being out of bed at three o'clock in the morning to a shocking experience where actually his passing was quite peaceful. Life is fragile and it's to be enjoyed and sometimes life is painful. We have to sit in that pain. We have to allow it to pass and you can't pass it on to someone else as well. We can't take that pain out onto someone else. It wouldn't be life, would it, if we only experienced the good bits, the joy. Grief is a universal experience. It affects us all at some points in our lives, whether it's the loss of a loved one, a pet, a job, a relationship or even a way of life. It can be painful and an overwhelming experience. One of the most important things to understand is that it's not that linear process. It's messy, it's unpredictable journey that can be different for everyone. Some people may experience intense emotions immediately after loss, while others might just be numb or in shock. Some people might go through a period of denial, while others may experience anger, guilt, or even as serious as depression. One of the most important things that can help us get through and navigate grief is to find support, and that comes in many forms such as talking to your friends and family or seeking the help of a therapist or a counsellor, joining support groups or finding solace in some of those spiritual practices. Or maybe even create a podcast and talk about it. This has been quite a cathartic experience for me today. Ultimately, grief is a natural and necessary part of the human experience. And in some ways, it is a testament to the depth of our love and our capacity to feel deeply. While it might be painful and difficult, it is also an opportunity for growth and transformation. I'll end this segment with how I ended my dad's eulogy and it sums up what I just said there about our capacity to love and to feel. I ended it with, to paraphrase A.A. Milne, how lucky, how blessed we are to have had Larry, my dad, as a husband, a dad, a granddad, a great granddad, a brother, a friend. How blessed we are to have had someone so special that makes saying goodbye so, so painful. Thank you for joining me at the table today. It's probably been one of the most personal episodes that I've recorded. So thank you for joining me here at the table. Share your stories of grief too. I'd love to know what got you through and your experiences. If you are struggling with a loss, then I'll put the details of Crew's bereavement support in the episode notes of where you can get some extra help if you need it. If you do have time, please can I ask you a favour. Make sure to rate and review the podcast wherever you listen. If you don't want to miss the next episode, why would you? Then like or follow the podcast on your app of choice. You can get in touch with me and follow me on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and TikTok, all at I am Craig Story. If you want to join me at the table, of course, get in touch. Tableconversationpodcast at gmail.com. I'll keep the seats warm until next week. I'll look forward to sitting down with you then. Until then, goodbye.
Hello, it's that time. Gather around the table. Welcome to Table Conversation, where we dish out interesting topics, just like we dish out snacks in fancy little bowls. Me, I am Craig Story. Well, what's your drink of choice this week then? I'm sipping, well, maybe gulping on a glass of red wine while we dive into some more meaningful conversation. It really is lovely to have you here. Thank you for listening. If you want to keep up with everything that's going on with Table Conversation, make sure you give me a follow on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all at I'm Craig Story. And if you've got a story to share, I want to hear about it. Shoot me an email at tableconversationpodcast at gmail.com. So I think that's everyone in their seats at the table sitting comfortably. Let's get ready to get those thoughts provoking. Let's get ready to discuss. Let's go. Today we're going to be talking about cash and the potential of a cashless society and digital currencies. With the pandemic changing our use of cash and how businesses have responded to this, it is a topic that is becoming more and more relevant. But is a cashless society something that we really want? What are the pros? What are the cons? Well, let's talk about it today. To kick things off, let's talk about the role of cash in our society. Well, cash is a tangible form of payment. We can touch it, we can feel it, and we use it in a way that feels secure. It's a belief in it, isn't it? It's a belief in the currency that we have. We've been using it for centuries, and it's been the primary form of payment for most transactions, from buying groceries to paying for services. Have you ever wondered how cash came to be? Well, get ready for a brief history lesson that will take us back to ancient times. My history teacher, Mr. Faulkner, would be so proud of me right now. Well, back in the day, people would trade goods and services through a system called bartering. Essentially, this meant that if you had chickens or you needed potatoes, you'd need to find someone who had potatoes and wanted chickens. It was a bit of a hassle, to say the least. Then, around 1200 BC, the Chinese came up with a brilliant idea of using cowrie shells as currency. These little shells were easy to carry around and had a relatively consistent value. They were soon adopted by other civilizations, including the Egyptians and the Greeks. Fast forward a few centuries and coins made of precious metals like gold and silver became the norm. These are more durable and easier to measure in terms of value. Plus, they look pretty cool. It's an upgrade from a cowrie shell anyway, isn't it? The first official coin was minted in Lydia, that's modern-day Turkey, in the 7th century BC. But wait, there's more. In the 13th century, the Mongols came up with a new kind of currency called paper money. This was essentially a promissory note that could be exchanged for goods and services. It was a game changer as it made it much easier to carry large amounts of money and conduct business across long distances. Well, today we use a combination of coins, paper money, digital transactions to buy and sell goods and services. And while it may not be as exciting as carry shells or shiny gold coins, it certainly is more convenient. So there you have it, a brief history of cash. But who knows what the future holds for cash? Well, maybe you're already living in the future of cash. Just imagine you're at a shop, you pull out your smartphone or your smartwatch to pay for your purchase. No cash, no card, just a tap on your screen and voila, transaction complete. It's a little bit like magic, isn't it? But it's not. It's just the future of payment. As the world becomes increasingly digital, our payment methods have evolved to keep up. According to a recent study, cash usage has been on the decline for years, with digital transactions accounting for over 70% of all transactions in some countries. You can relate that percentage to your own household, whether you pay for your products and services using cash or digital payments, whether that be your, your monthly bills, your groceries or your meals and your nights out. Something else you hear a lot of people talk about are digital currencies. So what are these digital currencies? 
Well, one you hear a lot of people talk about is Bitcoin, and that was created in 2009 by an unknown person using the pseudonym Satoshi Nakamoto. It's a decentralized digital currency, meaning it's not controlled by any government or financial institution. Instead, transactions are recorded on a public ledger called a blockchain. Ethereum, on the other hand, is a decentralized platform that enables the creation of smart contracts and decentralized applications, dApps. It has its own digital currency called Ether, which is used to pay for transactions on the Ethereum network. But it's not just digital currencies that are changing the game. Cashless payment options such as credit and debit cards, mobile payments and online banking, they've all made our lives easier, haven't they? No more digging through our wallets for cash or worrying about having the exact change. Just a swipe, a tap or a click and we're done, aren't we? Of course, there are potential downsides to going cashless and using digital currencies. For one, there are many concerns around privacy and security. But overall, it is clear that the future of payment is digital. Well, the usage of digital currencies and cash varies widely across different countries, with some countries embracing digital currencies more than others. According to a study by Statista, as of 2022, the countries with the highest usage of digital currencies were Nigeria, Vietnam and South Africa. In these countries, a relatively high percentage of the population reported using or owning digital currencies such as Bitcoin or Ethereum. On the other hand, some countries have been slower to adopt digital currencies. For example, in Japan, where it's often seen, isn't it, as a leader in adoption of new technologies, they're always at the forefront of technology. Well, there, the use of digital currencies remains relatively low. According to a survey by the Bank of Japan, only 4% of respondents reported using digital currencies. In terms of cash usage, the countries with the highest levels of cash usage tend to be in emerging economies, where digital payment infrastructure is less developed. According to a report by the World Bank, as of 2022, the countries with the highest usage of cash were Angola, Bolivia and Cameroon, where more than 90% of all transactions were made in cash. Meanwhile, in developed economies, the use of cash has been declining in recent years. According to a report by the European Central Bank, the use of cash has been declining steadily across the euro area since 2008, with cash payments accounting for just 48% of all payments in 2019. Closer to home in the UK, cash payments accounted for just 23% of all payments in 2021, according to a report by UK Finance. Overall, the use of digital currencies and cash varies widely across different countries and regions. It's influenced by a range of factors, including economic development, technological infrastructure and cultural norms. Everybody has their own theories about the future of cash. And as with everything, I think it is really important to have a balanced approach. Maybe in the future we will be paying with a microchip implanted under our skin or using holographic projections to complete transactions. And while it's difficult to predict exactly how digital payments will evolve in the future, there are several theories and trends that could shape the future of payments. One trend that we all see, don't we? We see the increasing use of mobile payments. With the rise of smartphones and mobile technology, many people are now using their mobile devices to make payments. The trend is expected to continue in the future with more people using mobile payments to make purchases and manage their finances. Another trend is the use and the increasing use of biometric authentication for payments. 
This involves using physical characteristics such as your fingerprints or facial recognition. Happened to me the other day, my face wasn't close enough when I was trying to use Apple Pay. So they use these things to verify a user's identity and to authorise the transaction. The trend, as I said, is already underway with many banks and financial institutions experimenting with biometric authentication for payments. In addition, there is a growing interest in the use of blockchain technology for payments. If you've never heard of blockchain, don't worry, because neither had I before I started looking into this podcast. Now, blockchain, you read about it in articles, don't you? But blockchain is a decentralized, secure ledger system that can be used to facilitate transactions without the need for a central authority. So it's not linked to any banks or any governments. Some experts believe that blockchain could revolutionize the way we make payments, making them faster, cheaper and more secure. Other theories about the future of digital payments include the use of wearable technology for payments. We do, don't we? We wear smartwatches, fitness trackers, and the development of new payment platforms that integrate multiple payment methods and multiple different currencies. But the convenience and security of cashless payments aren't the only reasons they're gaining popularity. Studies have shown that going cashless can also have a positive impact on the economy. Well, for one, cashless payments reduce the costs of handling and transporting cash. This can save businesses and banks a significant amount of money. It's estimated that cash handling costs can be as high as 1.5% of a country's GDP. Cash handling can consume a significant amount of a country's GDP for a few reasons. Firstly, the production and circulation of physical currency requires resources such as paper, ink, metal, which can be costly to produce and distribute. In addition, the handling and transportation of cash can be expensive for businesses and banks. Cash must be securely transported and stored, which requires additional security measures and personnel. The costs associated with handling and transporting cash can add up quickly, particularly for businesses that handle large amounts of cash on a regular basis. Furthermore, the use of cash can also contribute, shall we say, to the the informal economy, which can be difficult to regulate and monitor. This can lead to tax evasion and other illegal activities, which also have a negative impact on a country's GDP. Cashless payments can also help combat fraud and tax evasion. Digital transactions are easier to track and record, making it more difficult for people to hide income or engage in illegal activities. This can lead to increased tax revenues for governments and a more transparent economy overall. But what about those who still rely on cash? It's true that not everyone has access to digital payment systems. In fact, in the UK, 4% of the population don't have any digital internet access. Some people may not feel comfortable using them either. There are several groups of people who may rely on cash and may not have access to digital payment systems. For one, elderly people, older adults may be less familiar with digital technology and may prefer to use cash for their transactions. People on lower incomes as well. People with low incomes may not have access to digital payment systems due to the cost of devices, data plans and other associated expenses. Cash is a tried and trusted way to spend within your means and budget. Counting cash or coins is also how many people teach their children about the value of money. People without bank accounts or unbanked or underbanked individuals, people who do not have a bank account and have limited access to banking services may rely on cash for all of their transactions. In Britain, there are 1.3 million people who do not have a bank account. Could be a whole host of reasons, maybe long established habits, they don't trust the banks or banks don't trust them. But 1.3 million is an awful lot of people to exclude from the economy. Rural communities and people living in rural areas may have limited access to digital payment systems due to the lack of infrastructure and internet connectivity. People who are homeless or living in poverty may rely on cash for their transactions. They may not have access to digital payment systems or the necessary ID documents to open up a bank account. 
It also makes it much harder to give something to someone that's homeless or throwing some coins to a busker in the train station without cash. How do we do all of that? I know some buskers that are registered do have card payment machines as well, don't they? Where you can just tap to, to show your appreciation. I think that's why it's really important to note that while digital payment systems offer many benefits, not everyone has equal access to these systems. And as we move towards a more cashless society, it is important to ensure that everyone has access to the financial tools they need and have a right to, to be able to participate in the economy. That's why it's important for businesses and governments to ensure that everyone has access to cashless options, while also respecting people's right to use cash if they choose to. Well, overall, we can see And it's clear that going cashless has its benefits. From increased convenience and security to a more efficient and transparent economy, it's easy to see why digital payments are becoming more and more the norm. It's important to remember, though, that not everyone may be ready or able to make the switch. And we need to ensure that everyone has access to payment methods that work best for them. So what are your thoughts on this? Are you a cashless convert or do you prefer the old fashioned way of paying with cash? I'd love to know what you think. During the pandemic, there was a concern about the handling of cash as a potential source of transmission for the virus. This is because it was thought that the virus can survive on surfaces, including banknotes and coins, for several hours or even days. Well, in response to these concerns, many businesses and individuals began to reduce their use of cash and turn to contactless and digital payment methods instead. For example, in the UK, the World Health Organization advised people to wash their hands after handling cash, and the Bank of England encouraged use of contactless payments to reduce the risk of any transmission. Similarly, the World Health Organization, WHO, advised people to wash their hands after handling cash, and the UK government suggested that retailers encourage the use of contactless payment methods and limit the handling of cash where possible. While it is important to note that the risk of transmission through cash was found to be relatively low compared to other forms of transmission such as respiratory droplets, the concern over handling cash during the pandemic highlights though, the potential risks associated with physical currency and anyone that's been on holiday to any countries with poorer sanitation records will know this from handling cash in some of those countries. You can see though as a result the pandemic has accelerated the shift towards a cashless society with many businesses and individuals adopting digital payment methods in an effort to reduce contact and minimise any risks of transmission. The pandemic has had a significant impact on our use of cash, with many people turning to cashless payment options in an effort to reduce that risk of transmitting the virus. People generally thought about touching any kind of services, and I think that has stayed with us, that people are more concerned about touching and making sure their hands are clean. This shift towards a cashless society has been accelerating for some time, but the pandemic has acted as a catalyst, accelerating the process. We can use the UK as an example. The use of cash has declined rapidly over the past few years. According to a report by UK Finance, that's the Trade Association for the UK Banking and Financial Services sector, cash payments accounted for just 23% of all payments made in the UK in 2019. This is a significant drop from 2009 when cash payments accounted for 60% of all payments. Again, you can relate these percentages to your own household and how much cash that you're using. As I said, the pandemic has accelerated this trend. According to research by ATM operator Link, the volume of cash withdrawals from ATMs fell by 37% in the UK. That was during the first three weeks of lockdown in March 2020. Meanwhile, the use of contactless payments increased, with some retailers reporting a 70% increase in contactless transactions. 
Well, the shift towards a cashless society has implications for businesses, individuals and society as a whole. For businesses, there are potential benefits to going cashless, such as increased efficiency and reduced costs. Digital payment methods can be faster and easier to manage than cash and can help businesses to track their finances more effectively. However, Going cashless could also create additional costs and complexities for some businesses, particularly those that rely on cash payments. For example, small businesses that operate on tight margins may struggle to adapt to digital payment methods, which can come with additional fees and charges. For individuals, the shift towards a cashless society could also have implications. For example, elderly people or those living in poverty may not have access to the technology or resources needed to be able to participate fully in a cashless society. This could create a digital divide with some people excluded from certain aspects of the economy and life. In addition, going cashless could also raise concerns about data privacy and cybersecurity. With all transactions recorded digitally, there's potential for governments, corporations and other entities to track and monitor our spending habits, raising concerns about surveillance and potential abuses of power. Tom Mutton, who's a director at the Bank of England, said that programming digital currency could become a key feature of any digital currency. Programmable digital currency could stop or restrict you from buying things that the government deems as a health or social risk at the time. It could reduce the amount that you spend on gambling, alcohol or fast food. Maybe you think it could be a good thing to help reduce our impact on the environment by reducing the amount of flights that we take each year or the amount of clothes that we buy. Or maybe you prefer your own personal responsibility. It is important to point out that whilst the Bank of England have said that this could become a feature, there's no plans to introduce this by the UK government at this stage. Another thing to point out is that digital payment systems are vulnerable to cyber attacks, which could result in the theft of sensitive financial information. Well, firstly, let's take a close look at the potential benefits of a cashless society. While there are concerns about the loss of physical currency, there are also compelling reasons why going cashless could be the way of the future. A cashless society would require less physical infrastructure, such as banks and ATMs, because digital payments can be made without the need for physical cash. This means that also people would no longer need to visit physical bank branches to withdraw or deposit money and banks would not need to maintain as many physical locations. The implications of this shift towards a more digital economy could be significant. Banks and other financial institutions may need to rethink their business models to adapt to this change. Instead of maintaining physical locations, they may need to invest more in digital infrastructure such as online banking platforms and mobile payment apps. This shift could also have an impact on jobs in the financial sector. With less need for physical bank branches and ATMs, there may be a decrease in jobs related to maintaining and staffing these locations. However, there may also be an increase in jobs related to digital infrastructure and technology. In addition, a move towards a cashless society could have implications for people who do not have the access to digital payment methods. While the use of digital payments is becoming more widespread, there are still people who rely on physical cash for their day-to-day -day transactions. Governments and financial institutions may need to do some work to ensure that these people are not left behind as the economy becomes more digital. That 4% that I mentioned that don't have internet access and the 16% the of the population that don't own a smartphone. 
A cashless society could also potentially reduce certain types of crime, such as theft and robbery. This is because cash is a common target for criminals who may target businesses and individuals in order to steal physical currency. According to the Office for National Statistics, there were over 82,000 reported incidents of robbery in England and Wales in the year of 21-22. Of these incidents, approximately 40% involved the theft of cash. Digital payments can offer greater security than physical cash. Transactions are encrypted and secure, which can help prevent fraudulent activity. This can help protect businesses and individuals from theft and other types of financial crime. However, it is important to note that digital payments are not immune to fraud and cybercrime. There have been instances of digital payment systems being hacked and funds being stolen. As the technology continues to evolve, it will be important to ensure that digital payments are secure and resistant to fraud and cyber attacks. And also convenient to us, it's very annoying, isn't it, when you have to verify your purchases and log into another app and to jump through a couple more hoops just to make your payment of an online bill. Despite these challenges, the potential benefits of a cashless society in terms of reducing the potential for certain types of crime are clear. As we continue to move towards a more digital economy, it will be important to ensure that our payment systems are secure and that we're taking steps to prevent financial crime. Now let's take a closer look at the potential implications of a cashless society on those who are not able to use technology, such as the elderly or those living in poverty. One of the biggest concerns is that a cashless society could widen the digital divide between those who have access to digital payment methods and those who don't. For example, elderly people may not be familiar with using digital payment methods and may not have access to a smartphone or other technology. Similarly, people living in poverty may not have access to bank accounts or the financial resources to make digital payments. This could create real issues for these groups as they may find it difficult to participate fully in a cashless society. They may have limited access to goods and services and may be excluded from certain aspects of the economy. This could lead to further marginalisation and inequality. In addition, a cashless society could also potentially create issues for people who rely on cash for the day-to-day transactions. By way of example, some small businesses may prefer to use cash for their transactions as it can be easier to manage and track. A move towards a cashless society could create additional costs and complexities for these businesses as they need to adapt to digital payment methods. To address these concerns, it will be important to ensure that everyone has access to the technology and the resources needed to fully participate in a cashless society. This could include programmes to help elderly people and those living in poverty to learn how to use digital payment methods, as well as initiatives to promote financial inclusion and access to banking services. As well as this, it will be important to ensure that businesses and individuals have access to the resources and all of that support that they'll need to transition to a cashless society. This could include education and training programmes, as well as support for businesses to implement digital payment methods and other types of digital infrastructure. In the UK, a cashless society could also raise concerns about the loss of privacy. With all transactions being recorded digitally, there's potential for governments and corporations and other entities to track and monitor our spending habits, raising concerns about surveillance and data privacy, as well as potential issues with hacking and, of course, cyber security. And privacy is a real concern. According to a study by the UK's Information Commissioner's Office, 85% of people in the UK are concerned about how their personal data is being used by companies. Similarly, a report by the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufacturers and Commerce found that only 41% of UK citizens trust banks with their data. That potential loss of privacy in a cashless society could exasperate these concerns. 
It would be much easier for governments and corporations to collect data about our behaviour and spending habits, which could raise concerns about potential abuses of power. Another thing, a cashless society could also create potential issues with hacking and cyber security. Digital payment systems are vulnerable to cyber attacks, which could result in the theft of sensitive financial information. This could have serious consequences for individuals and businesses alike, as well as for the broader economy. It is important to point out that there are steps that can be taken to address these concerns. For example, the UK's General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, that provides strong data protection laws to ensure that individuals' privacy is protected. The UK government has also invested in robust cybersecurity measures to help prevent cyber attacks and protect sensitive financial information. Another potential issue with a cashless society is the impact on people who rely on cash payments. This includes those who work in the informal economy or those who are unbanked, meaning they don't have access to a bank account or credit cards. Without cash, these individuals could potentially be excluded from the economy and face financial hardship. This could particularly affect marginalised communities who may already be facing barriers to accessing financial services. For example, in the UK, an estimated 1.3 million people are unbanked according to a study by the Financial Inclusion Commission. These individuals may rely on cash payments to purchase goods and services. That cashless society could create additional barriers to that financial inclusion. Many people who work in the informal economy, such as street vendors and market traders, they also rely on cash payments to conduct their business. A move towards a cash society could create additional costs for them, additional complexities for all of those individuals, and they would need to adapt to the digital payment methods. To address these concerns, it will be important to ensure that everyone has access to the technology. This could include, again, initiatives to promote financial inclusion, access to banking services for those that are unbanked, as well as programmes to train and to help businesses adapt to digital payment methods. It's also important to recognise there are potential benefits to that cashless society, such as increased efficiency and reduced costs. However, it will be important, and one of the most important points, to ensure that these benefits are not achieved at the expense of vulnerable communities and that everyone has the opportunity to participate fully in the economy. Well, let's dive deeper into the world of digital currencies. Their rising popularity, it's important to understand their potential benefits and some of the drawbacks. Imagine being able to send money to someone on the other side of the world in just a few minutes, all without having to worry about exchange rates or fees. Well, that's the promise of digital currencies. Because they're not subject to the same regulations and fees as traditional currencies, they can make cross-border transactions much faster, cheaper and more convenient. One of the main advantages is their ability to facilitate fast and cheap cross-border transactions. With traditional currencies, cross-border transactions can be slow and quite expensive. Banks and other financial institutions, well, they often charge high fees for exchanging currency and transferring the funds across borders. Additionally, the process can take several days or even weeks to complete, depending on the countries that are involved. Digital currencies, on the other hand, are not subject to the same regulations and fees as traditional currencies. And because they're decentralised and not controlled by a single entity, they can be transferred quickly and easily with minimal fees. In fact, some digital currencies can be transferred in just a few minutes, regardless of the location of the sender or the receiver. This is something that's quite significant for people and businesses that operate globally. For example, a business in the United States could use digital currencies to pay a supplier in China, all without having to worry about exchange rates or high fees. 
Again, a person living in a country with a weak currency could also use digital currencies to store value and protect themselves against inflation. In addition to their ability to facilitate those cross-border transactions, digital currencies can also offer a degree of anonymity and security. Because they're encrypted and they're not tied to personal information, these digital currencies can offer greater privacy than traditional payment methods. This can be especially important for people living in countries with unstable governments or for those who value their privacy. Digital currencies can also be used as a store of value, similar to gold or other commodities. In fact, some investors see digital currencies as a hedge against inflation, as their value is not tied to any particular country or government. First, it's important to understand how traditional currencies can be impacted by inflation. Inflation occurs when the value of a currency decreases over time, leading to a decrease in purchasing power. This can happen when a government prints too much money or when the economies experience high levels of demand, something we're seeing right now in our own economy in the UK. When a currency is subject to inflation, it can be difficult to find a store of value that can maintain its worth over time. That's where digital currencies come in. Because they're decentralised and not tied to any particular country or government, their value is not subject to the same inflationary pressures as traditional currencies. All meaning that digital currencies can offer a hedge against inflation. Investors can use those digital currencies as a way to protect their wealth from the effects of inflation, as the value is not tied to any particular economy or government. Instead, their value is determined by the market demand for the currency. But why do digital currencies not need to be centralised? Traditional currencies are controlled by governments and central banks. They can manipulate their value through policies such as interest rates and money supply. This means that traditional currencies are subject to the inflationary pressures of their respective economies. Digital currencies, on the other hand, are decentralised and not controlled by any single entity. Transactions are recorded on a public ledger, which we found out earlier is called a blockchain. This is maintained by a network of computers around the world. And because there's no central authority controlling the currency, it's not subject to those same inflationary pressures, as we've said, as the traditional currencies. This level of decentralization also means they can offer greater privacy and security. They can also offer that degree of anonymity and protection against fraud. But as with any investment, there are risks involved. Digital currencies are highly volatile, their value fluctuating widely from day to day. In fact, the value of Bitcoin, the most well-known digital currency, has swung from under $1,000 to over $60,000 in just a few years. This makes digital currencies a risky investment and not one that's suitable for everyone. Another concern with digital currencies is their association with illegal activities, such as money laundering and tax evasion. Because digital currencies are not subject to the same regulations and the same oversights as traditional currencies, they can be used to facilitate illegal transactions. This has led to calls for increased regulation and oversight of digital currencies. Despite these concerns, many people see digital currencies as the future of money. They offer fast, cheap and convenient cross-border transactions and they can save as a hedge against inflation. But as with any investment, it is important to do your own research and understand all of the risks that may be involved. So what do you think? Are digital currencies the way of the future or are they just a passing fad? As technology continues to evolve and our payment options expand, it'll be interesting to see how digital currencies develop over time and whether the central bank digital currency or the Britcoin that the British government talk about, whether that's developed and the centralised controlled form of a digital currency, whether that happens and how it all plays out. It will be really interesting to see what happens with this over the next few years. Well, imagine a world where you could pay for your morning coffee with cash, 
Then use your phone to pay for your groceries later in the day. A world where you could choose the payment method that works best for you without feeling any pressure to go entirely cashless or entirely cash only. Well, that's the potential of a hybrid payment system. This system would allow for the flexibility of using both cash and digital payments, depending on the situation. For example, you might prefer to use cash when buying something from a street vendor or a local market. That's where you value that personal interaction and the physical representation of the value of the cash. On the other hand, you might prefer to use digital payments for larger purchases or online transactions, where you value the speed and the convenience of not having to carry cash. As with any system, there are potential complexities and costs to consider. Businesses and individuals would need to adapt to using both cash and digital payments. That could create confusion and additional administrative burden. For businesses, this could mean maintaining infrastructure for both cash and digital payments, which could be more costly. It has been enshrined in UK law that we have the right to access cash, but access to cash is only any good if you can use the cash you have access to. In the cities of New York and San Francisco in the United States, cashless stores have been banned by the governors there. Despite many challenges, there are already examples of hybrid payment systems in place. In some countries, such as Sweden, cash usage is declining, but it's not disappearing entirely. A hybrid system has emerged where both cash and digital payments are used interchangeably. The potential for a hybrid payment system raises important questions how we can create a system that works for everyone. Isn't that what we want? How can we ensure that people have access to the payment methods that work best for them? How can we balance the benefits of cash and digital payments while minimising the costs and the complexities? One thing's for sure, as technology continues to advance and our payment options are all evolving, it's clear that a hybrid payment system could be the way of the future. One thing's for sure, though, the future of payments is exciting. It'll be interesting to see how this develops over time and how it all plays out. And just as we have here, I think it's really important to explore the the benefits and the potential drawbacks that come with any shift towards a cashless society and using more digital payments. As always, I'd love to know what you think. Are you excited about the convenience and security of going cashless? Or are you concerned about potential losses of privacy and access for those who may not have access to those digital payment systems? As we do navigate the transition, it's essential to have an open and honest conversation, just as we always do around the table. And I think it's really important that we can ensure that everyone is included and no one is left behind. As always, I'd love to know what your thoughts are. I'd love to hear from you. We can continue the conversation. You can find me across social media at I am Craig Story. If you found it inspiring and you want to make a positive impact, why not share the podcast with someone that you know will enjoy it? Now, this one is a digital payment. If you enjoy the work that I do and you'd like to support me, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash Craig Story. And if you do have time, please leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. Feedback really does help me to improve and work on topics that you want to talk about. Thank you once again for listening to Table Conversation. It's been lovely to have you around the table. I can't wait for more chitter-chatter next time. Until then, take care. 